Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. As we continue in 1 Corinthians with chapter 8, we are going to talk about food that has been sacrificed to idols. This is one issue where we have to find a balance between the freedom of the believer in Christ and the love for and witness to others. In verses 1 through 3, we see that it sounds like both sides are claiming that they have knowledge from God of the right thing to do. Paul encourages them not to be arrogant about their conclusions. Verses 4 through 13, in many translations, including mine, the NRSV that I'm working out of, put the positions of the different people in quotes, saying that idols aren't real. And they're arguing that since idols aren't real, it doesn't matter if the meat has been offered to them. Others, it bothers them. Paul actually calls those that it bothers weak. He says that they have defiled consciences, um, that they're not entirely redeemed here. Their conscience is weak because it's been impacted or damaged by the pagan practices that they have participated in. They're trying to be faithful, but they think those pagan gods are more than they really are. Verse 6 is a confession that is probably in quotations or set off in blocks, like indented um, in your translation. In verse 8, food doesn't matter. Um, Eating when you don't fear idols doesn't make you a better Christian, and not eating to avoid idolatry doesn't make you a better Christian. Eating is not the point. Love constrains believers from exercising their full liberty to eat, What knowledge may allow is perfectly ethical. Love may still forbid to try to be in the greater good. Um, Paul is going to come back to this in just a a few verses. But here he seems to be saying that um, purchasing meat that may or may not have been dedicated to idols is not a big deal. And eating that at home is not a big deal. But if you're eating in the pagan temple with other practitioners of that faith, then we may have an issue. This is what damages your witness. Paul encourages them to put their witness and their mentoring of other younger believers above their freedom. Moving into verse 9, Paul's going to talk about apostolic rights, um, the rights of the apostles, and Paul models doing just what he's advised in his own life. He puts his witness and his mentoring or developing of new disciples above his freedom. Verses 1 and 2, he's going to talk about the fact that some don't see him as an apostle. The requirement to be an apostle was thought to be that you had to have sat under Jesus' teaching. You had to have direct knowledge of Jesus. This was the rule that we see in replacing Judas, the betrayer, But they're saying that Paul didn't sit under Jesus' teaching. But Paul argues, I encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. I met Jesus in person. I have been called, and I am as legit as anyone else. Verses 3 through 7, 
the, the apostles, as they do this work um, of establishing a new ministry following Jesus' example, they are devoting their lives to the work of the ministry, which means they're living off of the church income. They're being provided meals by members and probably housing, um, especially when they travel in some of the members' housing. They very often take their wives with them, which means that the people who house them have to make room for couples. Um, they can't just bunk all the men in rooms together. So this creates uh, an obligation that, that would cost the churches some money. Paul's not condemning this, but he goes on in verses 8 through 14 to say that he and Barnabas have foregone a lot of those privileges. They haven't enjoyed things that are they're entitled to, and they did it. Paul makes his own living as a tent maker rather than living off the support of his churches to not be burdensome on them. So what we hear advocated is both full-time ministry and bivocational ministry. They're both approved, but the person and the situation are what determine its appropriateness in each. He uses the phrase, muzzling an ox while treading grain. He's quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, and this is consistent with Proverbs 12.10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, and the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Um, a laborer deserves wages here. Um, often when oxes were muzzled, when they were treading out the grain, separating it from the shaft, because as they walked, they would eat some of the grain, and you could lose a good bit of grain over the course of the day as the ox worked. But the idea here is that the ox deserves to partake in some of the labor that they are doing, that it's cruel to make someone work without providing for them. Verses 15 through 18, Paul says he asks for less than he deserves because he's busy proclaiming the gospel. He knows that when he's planting a new church, his full care could be burdensome to that small group of people. So he's willing to do his part to not be a burden. Um, and he, this gives him integrity and credibility as well. He's not trying to live high off of anybody. Verses 19 through 23, he talks about his Jewish roots and how he handles that. Paul was the strongest of champions for not making people convert to Judaism in order to convert to Christ, but he prefers his native culture. He defaults to Jewish ideas and practices um, when he's just being himself. He lives kosher when he is with Jews, but he doesn't around Gentiles, not to be hypocritical, but to not make anyone uncomfortable. Offending either group would hinder his ability to share Christ with them. All that he does, he does for the sake of the gospel. In verses 24 through 27, Paul says he works hard. He labors earnestly. He does it for the gospel. He runs to win. He's not just aimlessly out here um, ambling about. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And that's especially true when it's for Christ. In chapter 10, um, we're going to see that Israel's wandering in the desert and their experience there is offered up as a lesson. The Israelites were delivered. They were a delivered people who had experienced much yet yielded to temptation. 
In verses 1 through 4, we see that the Israelites had some signs of God's presence. They crossed the Red Sea. They had the cloud that led them. They had manna and water supernaturally provided to them. They also had the supernatural nourishment of God's revelation and of proper worship. And yet, even with all that, they failed to appreciate it and did not respond with consistent obedience. In verses 5 through 13, we see that they fell into idolatry, to sexual immorality, and to complaining, having ungrateful hearts and attitudes. To me, it's very convicting as we notice that he places idolatry, sexual immorality, and bad attitudes right here as being equal as far as sinfulness and disobedience. Um, He says, don't be overly confident, but also don't despair. You can be faithful because God will enable you to do so. And now in verses 14 through 22, um, Paul's going to contradict the enlightened theology of some of the people from earlier. They said that idols were nothing. He now is going to say that there are demons behind those idols. Um, It's not the eating of the meat that is the problem. It's the way you get drawn into participation in feasts that celebrate pagan gods and into the rituals that accompany them that become the problem. Paul does here affirm his belief in demons, in spiritual forces that work against God and against God's people. And in verses 16 and 17, we hear some words that we use commonly in communion. Beginning in verse 23 and running through the first verse of chapter 11, Paul is going to conclude his discussion of food and idols. This has been a long discussion. The conclusion, however, is that they're free to purchase meat in the marketplace, um, and they don't have to try to track down whether or not it was sacrificed to idols. You are free to go to the market to shop to take that meat home and eat it. Um, if it was sacrificed to an idol, you bear no blame for that. And if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, you have some reason to have to share a meal with them. You can go and you can eat, and you also don't have to to nail down where that meat came from and what it had experienced before it's put on the plate in front of you. You can go and eat what's put in front of you unless they make a big deal about it, unless they make an issue of it having been blessed by a particular pagan god or in a temple before they serve it to you. If that's the case, then your better witness is to refrain from eating it. So there are two principles at work here. Restrain your own rights to serve the goods of all, the good of all, and do all that you do to the glory of God. So think about how it affects others and think about what it says to our belonging to Christ. Um, Paul says this is what he does and what he encourages others to do. Be free, but don't go around just just callously or thoughtlessly offending everyone. Be kind as well as free and do it for the sake of the gospel. Moving into verse 2 of chapter 11, is a section that's going to run through chapter 14, verse 40, and we're going to deal with issues of public worship. Corinth had some issues with this. In verses 2 through 16, there's a controversy over head coverings and their proper role for people in worship. 
Paul is going to appeal to creation and to some common cultural practices to try to help them settle this dispute. Men often uttered prophecies in an ecstatic state wearing a hooded robe in the pagan cults of the time here in Corinth. Um, By wearing the hood, it was saying, it's not me speaking, but one of the gods speaking through me. Christian men were not to adopt this this practice in the church. They should just stand up and say what they hear God saying. Women, on the other hand, had a different cultural practice. When they uttered oracles um, in these pagan cults, they tended to do so unclothed, either fully unclothed or naked down to the waist. They also sometimes shaved their heads as well. Paul says not to adopt this practice in the churches either. Um, Honorable women wore a veil in public, and they should continue to do so. Temple prostitutes, um, who were the women, often shaved their heads as well. And temple prostitutes, who were men, often grew their hair long. It really was about blurring the distinction between genders so that you could engage with um, a person of either gender could engage a temple prostitute of either gender. And Paul is saying, don't adopt this practice. In fact, shun it. Um, Paul makes a very odd appeal here to the order of creation, that Adam was created first in the image of God, and then Eve was created from Adam, but also in the image of God. Um, And I could trace through for you all the way back through Greek words and what we think he's saying. It it feels a little bit odd um, because what it seems to be implying is that like Eve is less than Adam, so women are less than men. Scholars really don't think that's what he's saying. The lesson here seems to be that the way a man behaves in his life, in church, and in ministry reflects on God. The way a woman behaves reflects on God and her husband. Um, Consider how what you're doing, like when you're standing up to preach or prophesy or pray, how you're behaving and do that is going to have a reflection on your family and those who are associated with you. Um, And so it's really leaning heavily on the fact that she is his partner or helpmate. And so for her to be partially or fully uncovered or naked um, really violates the the morality issues that come to us into Christianity from out of the Jewish faith of being modest. There's this odd thing about a woman having authority on her head, which makes it sound like she has to be controlled in some way. But this is the same word for authority that Jesus has given to his believers, his followers and disciples to continue his work. It's the same word used for the authority that God gave Jesus in coming into human flesh and being human among us. So there are a couple ideas that may be going on here and scholars are divided. Some say that a woman only uncovered her head and freed her hair and let it down for her husband. So as a sign of modesty and commitment to him, when a woman went out in public, she put her hair up and she wore a veil. Um, That she should continue to do this only for her husband and not do it 
and not uncover those things in church. Because in the pagan cults, when they got into an ecstatic state, that joining or merging with a deity so that they could hear and deliver the oracle was considered a, a marriage act, a, an act of sexual union. And so there were some who wanted to say, my relationship with God is intimate and I become united with God and I deliver this oracle. And Paul is going, "That no, that's icky. Don't, don't do that. Um, there. Another equally accepted idea, and the one that I actually am going to lean toward, if we were to translate these literally from the Greek, here's what it would say. Because of this, ought the woman authority to have on the head on account of the angels. It actually seems to be implying that she should exercise her own authority to be modest. Like, you shouldn't have to be told that this makes you look bad in there, particularly since prostitutes and um, particularly temple prostitutes and pagans are behaving that way. Why would you want to do that? Like you ought to know that that doesn't feel right. Um, However, Paul goes on to say that the two genders are not independent of one another. She might have been created from a rib and Adam's side, but then all men have to be born of a woman. Each it depends on the other and is not independent, and all come from God. Then Paul says, so judge for yourself. Here's what I do, and here's what I think, and um, here's why, so now choose for yourself. So We know that certain clothing styles and the covering or revealing of certain parts of the body varied from in different cultures. In Corinth, an uncovered head was a sign of sexual availability or prostitution and idol worship. Men sent mixed signals when they covered their head Um, So local customs are going to impact Christian gatherings and what can be acceptable. Those who are wanting to argue about this are told by Paul kind of as his final word, I don't do this and neither do any of the other churches of God. And so that's a barb there. Um, The other churches of God, do you want to be a church of God or do you want to be just another variation of a pagan cult? Choose God. Stop mingling in the pagan practices that are part of supposed to be part that are supposed to be part of your former life and not your current life. And that little phrase, because of the angels, is asking them to remember that idea that the angels mated with human women to create the Nephilim, something that was an abomination. Um, you'll look sexually available, and that has not gone well in the past. For anyone, don't do it. However, in all of that discussion, I don't want you to miss the fact that both men and women are free to pray and prophesy in church gatherings. So men and women are equal in the church. They're equally able to be leaders, to preach, to pray, and to prophesy. Verses 17 through 34 is now going to talk about abuses of the Lord's Supper, so another issue in their times of worship. Some are eating and drinking to excess, and they're excluding the poor. This is not the purpose of the Lord's Supper and these gatherings. Jesus came to flatten out social status, stratas, not to reinforce them. 
Paul is so appalled at this report that he struggles to believe it. And he only says that he does believe it because you're making some other mistakes too. So I guess you are making this one, but this one's hard to believe. He uses a lot of indignant questions. And you may see this in the English translation with all the exclamation points. Um, particularly in verse 26, he says, how, how can you throw a party and be mean to one another and clickish? How, how can you be clickish at an event that is designed to remember that Christ died for you? That he took you out of your sin, out of your former group, and has been anything but mean to you. Like, how can you think that's acceptable at all? Like, this is not rocket science. Um, I think about how often we are stratified in church and how, how odd it must seem to Jesus that... Um, we don't see everybody as valuable and loved as he did. Verses 27 through 34 is a hard passage. There are two views. The first one is that God punishes just like he did the Israelites in the wilderness with sickness, weakness, and death. The other view is that this is spiritual sickness. They are susceptible to false doctrines and practices that they become weak, lacking Holy Spirit power in their life and in their in their church, and death, that they often walk away from Christianity and the church, that God denounced them, um, that they removed themselves. This, of course, is going to be the interpretation that I lean to. They are interested in spiritual experiences, and yet they absolutely miss the opportunity that this one provides to experience a spiritual grace. In verse 12, he's going to take up the issue of spiritual gifts and worship. In verses 1 through 3, he becomes pretty clear about the fact that the distinguishing mark of the Spirit is how Jesus is Lord in the life of the believer. It's not about miraculous powers or any one particular spiritual gift. Verses 4 through 11, we see that spiritual gifts are varied, but they all come from the one fountain, from the Trinity. Paul provides a sample list, not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. He starts with the two that they prize, and he ends with the two that are causing them trouble. The spiritual gifts are designed for the common good. They're deployed by the Spirit. They are not chosen by the believer. And he's basically saying, it is not about you. It's about the gospel. It's about us. It's about being the church and accomplishing our mission. And the gifts of the Spirit are sent to encourage us, to strengthen us, to give us the power and the unity to, to share God's mission and message with the world. In verses 12 through 31, Paul emphasizes the diversity and the interdependence of members that form the one body. All are needed. None can be neglected or removed without us being less than, less than whole. We're all needed. All the gifts are needed. All the people are needed. Some that are quite important are rarely seen. They work behind the scenes, but it wouldn't happen without them. And others that are quite visible are not necessarily as important there. That visibility is not the mark of how important that all are, are valuable. And he contrasts this with like a pretty face versus 
a, a good and authentic heart. What affects one affects the all. We all have to work together to be the one community of faith, the body of Christ. We have to seek the common good and not just our own self-interest. And with that, chapter 12 comes to a close. Thank you.